DW Living Planet with Sam Baker. Welcome to Living Planet. Often, when it comes to environmental problems, there's no one easy answer, no simple way out. If you push too far in one direction, the balance of the ecosystem pulls the other way. In one way or another, that's what all of our stories today have in common. After all, an ecosystem is a network of different species, all just trying to get on, in an ever-changing search for balance. It's a much bigger picture than just trees. There needs to be a balance, a place for everything. Trees and deer. And people. We all need to be sustained. How do we ensure human dignity and environmental justice in a globalized and rapidly heating world? I mean, here we are, we're supposed to buy an EV to make a green choice to preserve the environment for our children and grandchildren. And yet it comes at the cost of destroying the environment of the people in the heart of Africa. There is nothing decent, dignified, or remotely sustainable about cobalt mining operations in the Congo. That's all coming up here on Living Planet. Good to have you with us. This month, India has experienced a severe heat wave, reaching 109 degrees Fahrenheit or 43 degrees Celsius. Just last week, 13 people died of heat stroke and many more were hospitalized due to high temperatures at an outdoor public event. Extreme heat like this is scary enough, but add India's well-known struggle with air pollution and it's a recipe for disaster. A new report reaffirms that the country has some of the world's most polluted air. It kills more than one and a half million people every year. It's a finding that underscores urgent need for action. But as India works to clean up its air, scientists have realized it may face a surprising trade-off, even higher temperatures. Anupama Chandrasekharan has that story from Chennai, India. In Mumbai, the financial capital of India, many love to start their day with a nice spongy bun, called a pav, dunked in a cup of sweet, milky tea. Now that's a tradition Hema Ramani is very familiar with. Bread, it's an essential item and Mumbai girls wake up to having a, you know, the poorest of poor, he has one pav and he has a cup of chai. Ramani is part of the citizen-led Bombay Environmental Action Group. And what she found was the majority of these small bakeries that made pow were located close to their customer base in residential areas. And that was the problem. Before the crack of dawn, many small family-run bakeries proof and bake dinner rolls, 12 on a tray. The neighborhood burst with the nutty, easty aroma of freshly baked bread, but this olfactory celebration is followed by the violence of sooty black smoke from the bakery's chimneys. Many of these bread havens use wood-fired ovens. Gone are the days where, you know, you have low-rise buildings. Everywhere you're having high-rise buildings. So how high can you take your chimney to avoid the pollution? The government's asking people to stay inside. Mumbai's deteriorating AQI is one of the factors causing throat infections among children. City doctors say that... In 2022, the smoke of such bakeries, along with increased vehicle emissions and industrial activity, awarded India the label of having the eighth most polluted air in the world. 
A dozen of India's cities made it to the list of the world's top 15 most polluted cities, according to a report from Swiss-based air quality company IQR. Now, pollution is known to trap heat and increase temperatures, but some parts of India have seen less than half a degree Celsius increase. That's less than half the global average. And there's a clear scientific reason for that. If you see the pollution profile of many of our cities, we do have these fine particles from vehicles and industries. And these fine particles also have cooling effects. This is Rakesh Kumar, a scientist with the Indian government's Council of Scientific and Industrial Research who studies environmental pollution. So the radiation, when it reaches Earth, and the particles will actually reflect it back. So you don't get that much heating, typically, which happens. Kumar had joined Ramani's drive to get Mumbai's bakeries to switch from burning wood to running natural gas or electric ovens. But why were they choosing to talk to bakeries instead of confronting bigger polluters like factories and vehicles? But the problem is when we talk about traffic and industries, a mega problem which needs to be solved in a very different way. So what was actually thought was, why don't we show some success stories to people so that people give more credit behind, you know, air pollution related issues can be sorted and, and discussed and addressed. Approaching bakeries seemed like a manageable task. The South Asian nation has set a target for a 40% reduction in the concentration of tiny pieces of dust, dirt and soot that's known as particulate matter floating in the air of its top cities by 2026. Now this pollution may be keeping temperatures down to a certain degree as it reflects the heat from the sun, but it's still sweltering. India has faced its hottest February in 2023. In February, India had its hottest month since 1901 with an average maximum temperature of 29.54 degrees Celsius. India is extremely vulnerable simply because we have packed cities and in these packed cities there is less of open space. Arun Krishnamurthy is an environmentalist based in the South Indian city of Chennai who founded the Environmentalist Foundation of India in 2011. And uh, it's in this cramped environment in which we live with much proximity to each other and the kind of activities that happen, some small-scale industry to large-scale industry to domestic activities, vehicular pollution and what, this is creating kind of a bubble, which is a pollution bubble. This pollution bubble has been a double whammy for poor people living in shanties who make up a significant portion of the population. Nearly one in every six people in urban India lives in slums. Moreover, in Mumbai, some reports state that one in every ten people living in these slums have tuberculosis. This viral respiratory ailment has certainly been exacerbated by high levels of pollution. But the lack of air circulation and natural light in such homes hasn't helped either. I'm right now in a slum close to my home in the South Indian city of Chennai. The houses are stacked side to side and the windows open to the slum's narrow alleys. It does seem stuffy. In fact, the trapping of heat in such jammed spaces make them much, much warmer than other parts of the city. If my average temperature of the city is 40 degrees, there are pockets where it could be 45, 48, 50 degrees. Scientist Rakesh Kumar again. Local hotspots are as high as 8 to 10 degrees more. 
and that's the discomfort if you are living in that kind of a situation you you would be affected the health wise any reduction in temperature due to smog is certainly not being felt in these urban ghettos unfortunately i don't think enough is done to address these things this is ronak sutaria he's the founder of respirer living sciences an indian startup that produces low cost air quality monitoring systems and works with several government agencies they just treated as a hot day not kind of taking into account you know the significantly health impact it has on on vulnerable people many of them don't make it when when things get so bad Kumar and Ramani tried to change things but the going hasn't been easy with their bakery project and they have hit roadblocks so if there are 500 bakeries which are legal there are 5000 illegal ones so how do you even pass an order or rule saying that you must follow following dictate in terms of controlling it for now mumbai's bakeries still emit dark polluting smoke while sending the delightful aroma of freshly baked bread around the city meanwhile the number of private cars on the roads continue to soar it's doubled in the last decade and nearly all the energy supplied to the metropolis continues to be coal fueled now this is definitely going to increase the smog and may have an inadvertent benefit of reflecting more of the sun's heat but any respite in the heat will not be felt in these crowded slums and small stifling apartments city residents here may just see their health hit hard by both the worsening pollution and the heat for dw i'm anupama chandrasekharan in chennai india now one way of addressing both climate change and urban air pollution is replacing cars with internal combustion engines with electric vehicles although as anupama recently reported on living planet it takes about 2 to 3 years to make that new ev pay off in terms of greenhouse gas emissions saved you can find that living planet episode in our feed from january wherever you listen to podcasts it's called how do we shake fossil fuels But in another part of the world, electric vehicles are fueling a humanitarian catastrophe as well as environmental degradation. This is due to one of the key ingredients for EVs. Cobalt is used to create rechargeable lithium-ion batteries. So the things in your phone and computer, in e-bikes and electric scooters. It's the substance that helps our devices hold their charge for longer. And of course that's pretty key for electric vehicles when companies want to assure customers that their vehicles can quite literally go the distance. While cobalt enabled the era of mobile phones, an electric vehicle requires 1000 times more cobalt than your smartphone. As countries work toward their Paris Agreement commitments and look to put end dates on the sale of gas-powered cars, demand for cobalt has surged. And most of this material is coming from a single country where 7 in 10 people live on less than $2.20 a day. A country that suffered from a history of exploitation which continues today. The Democratic Republic of Congo holds the world's largest reserves of cobalt, making up about half the world's known supply. In his book Cobalt Red, my next guest writes, "Across 21 years of research into slavery and child labor, I have never seen more extreme predation for profit than I witnessed at the bottom of global cobalt supply chains." Siddharth Kara is a British Academy Global Professor and Associate Professor at the University of Nottingham. Here's our conversation. 
the foreign mining companies have bought up enormous swaths of countryside, often displacing entire villages, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people. So they're for the local population, and there's almost no way for them to survive. So what they do is often as family units, they scrounge in and around these enormous industrial mining zones, uh, using their bare hands to just dig additional cobalt out of the ground. And cobalt is toxic to touch, it's toxic to breathe. So all these people are being exposed to toxic cobalt every day, including thousands of women with babies on their backs, young children. They fill up their sacks as a family or in groups of workers and sell that cobalt to intermediaries that then sell it to industrial mining companies. And for all this hazard, uh, horrific injuries as well, they, they barely make a dollar or two a day. Can you describe the setup of mining cobalt in the DRC? How does it work? How are these businesses run and who owns them? Well, there's industrial mining that takes place and then there's so-called artisanal mining. Artisanal mining is kind of a nonsensical term that conjures images of quaint activity, people baking bread or whatever. What it really means is the local population using uh, their bare hands, pickaxes, rebar, shovels to dig cobalt-bearing ore out of the ground. The story is that these two categories, industrial and artisanal, don't mix. So that if a big tech or EV company says we're buying cobalt from ABC Industrial Mining Company, there's no child labor involved in it. But on the ground, the reality is completely the opposite. There are hundreds of thousands of people scrounging inside these industrial mines all around them, digging out in pits and and, and trenches and tunnels cobalt-bearing stones, and all of it flows into the same supply chain produced by the industrial mining companies. So before cobalt ever leaves the Congo, there's no way to discriminate what came from an excavator and what came from the hands of a child. It's equally a completely unregulated destruction of the environment there. So these foreign mining companies, most of which are Chinese-owned, just gouge the earth digging out enormous open pit mines. They clear cut millions of trees and they dump all the toxic effluents from the mineral processing facilities into the air, into the dirt, into the water. So the entire landscape there has been completely obliterated and contaminated. How did you get into these places to see these mines and and talk to the people there? Well, the industrial mining areas are heavily guarded. You know, there's so much money at stake. And more than that, uh, there's a truth that the stakeholders up the chain do not want to be revealed. So I worked with local contacts, people living and working in mining communities to gain access to those communities and to mining areas. And it took a lot of time, of course, on the ground to build trust, to be able to conduct interviews. But they have a truth to share, a truth that is completely antithetical to almost anything tech and EV companies that buy all this cobalt are declaring in their public statements and press releases about what the conditions on the ground really are. Was that their hope that this would get out to the broader world and and change the conditions there and lead to some change? People shared their stories, uh, oftentimes because just speaking is an act of power of trying to reclaim some sense of agency. Uh, Many times they spoke for the dead, I think the category of encounters that were most intense uh, were parents who told me uh, of the loss of a child. 
the number of parents who told me a child had been killed in a tunnel collapse or buried alive in a pit wall collapse. Um, just the amount of pain that is in the Congo right now, it just transcends measure. When you step back and see that this is a multi-generational trauma inflicted on these people because they happen to be sitting on resources the world wants, uh, it's just such an enormous injustice. Yeah. What about regulations in the country? How did these conditions come to be and why are they being allowed within DRC by the government there? You know, poor governance in the DR Congo is a part of the problem. A lot of the mining money that comes from sale of concessions, royalties and taxes collected, it it just goes missing or it's certainly not deployed adequately to support the population. And that's an issue. But we have to bear in mind that this is an enormously poor, war-torn country. And this gets back to the history of what's happening in the heart of Africa. You know, the Belgians colonized the Congo, starting with King Leopold, and he unleashed probably the most uh, brutal colonial slave terror machine that Africa ever saw. And it was tragically and ironically for the first automobile revolution to gather rubber sap for rubber tires, which had been invented just around the same time as he got his hands on the Congo. And so millions of Congolese people were terrorized and enslaved into pulling rubber sap out of the rainforest to feed up the chain into the rubber tires for for cars. You know, now imagine here we are 130 years later with this new automobile revolution from internal combustion engines to electric vehicles, and they almost all need cobalt. And who has all the cobalt? It's the Congo. And so this is just another chapter in this long, long story of pillage for resources that the global north desires for its various transitions and industrial developments. From your time spent there and your research, do you see a way out of this humanitarian disaster? Well, demand for cobalt starts at the top of the chain. You know, everything that's happening downstream is a consequence of that demand. And so where demand starts is where solutions need to start. So those companies need to accept responsibility for the people in the Congo digging their cobalt. They need to be on the ground 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, uh, doing the following. Ensuring that all the things they claim are happening are actually happening. That's the path forward. So the book's been out for a few months now. Uh, I'm curious what the response has been since it came out. The most important response has been that I've received thousands upon thousands of emails and social media messages from readers around the world who say, I had no idea. I was shocked to learn this. I can't believe that when I plug in my phone, I'm plugging in this misery and death of Congolese children. I can't believe that when I bought my EV thinking I was making a green choice, actually, it comes at the cost of destroying the environment in the Congo. That's the first step to change. When horror takes place, nothing can change until the world learns of it. Invariably, some community of conscience bands together 
and declares this cannot stand. And through their force of will, they set things right. Uh, That's how change is always achieved, particularly in human rights, particularly in anti-slavery movements across history. So we're in phase one now. Phase two will be some set of stakeholders, grassroots organizations, everyday citizens, perhaps even courageous policymakers and lawmakers coming together to pull and push the levers that they can to achieve the simple proposition that the companies that buy all this cobalt and stick it in their phones and cars are responsible for the conditions under which it's mined. And it is not a sufficient proposition to say, well, the Chinese mining company told me it's okay. Since when did China become the beacon of human rights? No, those companies need to be on the ground and interrogate that statement if they truly care about their supply chains and their declarations that their supply chains are untainted by human rights abuses and environmental destruction. That was Siddharth Kara, author of Cobalt Red, How the Blood of the Congo Powers Our Lives. This is Living Planet. I'm Sam Baker. Next to the Scottish Highlands, where red deer are a local icon, one of the big five of Scottish wildlife viewing. The stag's antlers are also a prize trophy among hunters. But there is growing controversy in communities there over how to manage this species. Major growth in deer numbers in recent decades has resulted in increased environmental damage and an ecosystem out of balance. Richard Baines went to Glencoe in the heart of the Highlands to find out more. Glencoe is popular with tourists who marvel at a bagpiper in full Highland dress among these snow-capped mountains. They also hope to see red deer, whose stags are an icon of the Highlands. But last year, the conservation charity which owns Glencoe decided to severely cull deer numbers here to let woodland spread and other sensitive habitats recover. The impact of deer grazing on the landscape here is to suppress the woodland. You can see just behind us here lots of willow and uh, birch grazing. Now you can see how thick the the stalks are on these little... um, Yes, these these little bushes here. Yes. You can see how thick the stem is down here. This is a birch. And yet up here... Everyone's grazed off. Scott McCombie is the head ranger at the Glencoe National Nature Reserve, which is owned by the conservation charity, the National Trust for Scotland. This has been years and years of, of continually grazing, and all around us here are these greyer ones. That's more willows, but they're the same. They're like so, bushes that have been cut with secateurs. Exactly. They're just continually suppressed here so although they're in amongst the heather the fact that they've they stick their head out above the heather 
the deer just come along and, and chomp off the tops of them. The deer are a native species, of course, but a man-made imbalance has let numbers double in the past 50 years to 400,000. We shot out the last of the, the wolves from Scotland, what, the 1750s, I think. Uh, bears were gone long before that. So there are no natural predators to keep their numbers in check. So the, the only way that their numbers are managed is by us. After a deer count here last year showed that there were 17 deer per square kilometre on the National Trust estate, it was decided to reduce that to just three. Stuart Brooks is conservation director for the National Trust and he says paradoxically shooting a lot of deer can be good for them. They're animals of woodland. We can see the comparison between deer weights in Scotland compared to Europe. And, you know, in some instances, they're about 20% lighter in terms of body weight. And we do see deer starving on the hillside because there's no shelter and, and there's nothing to eat. So I think there's going to be a transition from a situation where you've got large numbers of deer on the bare open hillsides to fewer deer, but healthier deer in a healthier, partly wooded environment. But the National Trust's neighbours are not happy with the decision. Professional deer stalkers manage deer on privately owned estates in the area. Their work's paid for by taking fee-paying hunters to shoot deer. And the stalkers are deeply worried by the Trust's plans. Right, so we'll need to be quiet now. There's deer just up in front of us, maybe 200 metres. If we can just sort of get up behind this knoll here, um, about 50 metres, and then we'll just crawl in over the top. Be just in perfect sort of shot distance. Mark Schoen is a stalker on one of the estates next to the National Trusts. If the NTS reduce those numbers as drastically as they're saying they're going to, then, you know, potentially for the estate I work on, we shoot 20 to 25 stags. We maybe go down to five stags. Can we justify keeping a stalker, full-time stalker on for five stags a year. The problem is there are no fences on these mountains. Deer move rapidly from one estate to another. Stalkers fear that if the National Trust cuts deer numbers dramatically, deer outside the trust area will see attractive empty habitat and flood in. Many more will then be shot and numbers overall in the area will fall below the level that makes the stalkers' jobs sustainable. Our clients accept the fact that, you know, there might be days that we go out and we don't get a stag, but if you're going out for a whole week and not getting a stag, then, you know, are they going to come back? I've got a guy that works under me, you know, it makes it very difficult to justify these positions if you don't actually have clients coming up um, that you can take out to the hill and stalk. Kirsty Thomas runs accommodation for hunters and her husband is a stalker. She pointed to wider impacts on the fragile local community. It'll certainly impact the hospitality side of the industry because people require accommodation to, to come and stay and, and stalk. But from a, a family side of, of things, it concerns me massively. We have young children who've been here for over a decade who have filled the local schools. If we're not here, our kids won't be here either. It's a much bigger picture than just trees. There needs to be a balance, a place for everything. Trees and deer. And people. We all need to be sustained. The National Trust insists there will be no crisis. It says by shooting deer all year round, which is a departure from traditional seasons, deer will be permanently frightened from its area and numbers outside its estate will be sustained. This dispute is no one-off though. 
A similar one is running between another conservation charity and its neighbours in Assint in the northwest Highlands. In the Cairngorm Mountains to the east of here, there's been a simmering conflict for years as some estates cut deer numbers and others fear for livelihoods. And reducing deer numbers has been endorsed by the Scottish Government itself, one of a string of recommendations from an in-depth report on the damage that deer do. Estates all over the Highlands work together in local deer management groups set up by the government to deal with such problems. The group covering the Glencoe area is trying to resolve this dispute. Right, so we're going to weigh the deer now. Fortunately, we have a witch. Tom Turnbull is a stalker and estate owner who processes the carcasses he shoots for sale as venison. He's also the chairman of the Countrywide Association of Deer Management Groups. There are more and more people who want to reduce deer numbers and that's in line with Scottish Government policy as well for the benefit of habitat and in light of the climate crisis and the biodiversity crisis. But equally within deer management groups there are those people who want to and need to maintain an income and retain jobs from a sporting cull but he has hope that these conflicts can be resolved. I am optimistic that we'll find a way through this. There are going to be challenges ahead, but as a stalker myself, you know, I think I'll be stalking in 20 years' time, taking people out on the hill. We may not be shooting quite as many deer, but I, I am optimistic. Richard Baines, 4DW in Glencoe, Scotland. That's it for our show today, but you can find more DW Environment coverage at dw.com environment, or we're on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Just search for DW Global Ideas and Environment. You can also find me on Twitter at SRM Baker. Thanks this week to Vibka Tegtmeyer and Gerd Georgi in the studio. I'm Sam Baker. We'll be back next week with more environment stories from around the globe.